A multi-country outbreak of cholera was reported by the World Health Organization in May 2023. And since the beginning of 2023, a total of 24 countries have reported cases. South Africa is among the countries affected by the outbreak. To aid healthcare workers in identifying, diagnosing, and treating cholera, MicrobeMail has put together this bonus episode on the rapid review of cholera. Now, I wanted to call this a quick and dirty cholera episode, but Ruan insisted that we be a little bit more formal and call it a rapid review. So I was thinking quick and dirty because it's quick. The incubation time for cholera is usually two hours to five days and dirty because you get it from dirty water. Anyway, so today I'm joined by Ruan. Hi, Ruan. Hi. And our expert guest is Amanda Kumalo. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us today on this rapid review episode, and especially for agreeing to do this at, at such short notice. Please, will you go ahead and tell the listeners about yourself? Oh, thank you. Thanks, Vin, and thank you for the invitation. Um, my name is Amanda Kumalo, and I'm a clinical microbiologist. I'm at Khudiskir um, Microbiology with the NHLS. And by way of background, I did my undergraduate training at uh, what was then called Medunsa, mm -hmm. now called Sifako Makato University, and did my micro time in KZN, and from there found my way down to Cape Town to practice. So, yeah. So you've done a tour of the entire country, basically. <laughs> basically, basically a micro tour of the country. Yeah, a micro tour of the country. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Amanda. So listeners, a quick reminders before we head into the content of this episode, remember to sign up for updates on the Microbe Mail website. Follow Microbe Mail on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, as well as Facebook. Remember to rate Microbe Mail on your favorite podcast player, and we'd love a five stars if you can give us that. And also share with colleagues, friends, and students. Also share this with anyone who has recently managed or potentially may be managing patients with suspected or confirmed cholera in the near future. Okay, Amanda, Ruan, are we ready? Yep, let's go. Yep. Okay, so let's start right at the beginning, Amanda. Can you tell us what is cholera? Okay, so uh, cholera is a diarrheal disease, basically, and it's caused by a microorganism that's called Vibrio cholera. And this organism is a gram-negative bacillus, and it belongs to the family Vibrionaceae, which actually has some features quite uh, in common with the Enterobacterialis group of gram-negatives, which I'm sure most clinicians are, are familiar with. The particular characteristic differences to most gram-negatives is that it's comma-shaped versus other gram-negatives, which tend to be rod-shaped, and that it actually possesses a polar flagellum, which uh, allows for it to be motile, but also causes the very erratic uh, movement that you can see from cholera on light microscopy. Also, this is now an important part from the lab component. This organism has got uh, somatic antigens, and uh, they're also called O antigens. And this is usually what we use for um, classifying the organisms in terms of serogroups. So the two main serogroups is O1 and as well as the non-O1 group. And uh, there's many other serogroups that have been identified, but in terms of clinical cholera and outbreaks, these are the most significant ones. Okay, thanks, Amanda. And regarding epidemiology of cholera, particularly before this outbreak and related to South Africa, what, what did what did the landscape look like? Which clinicians were would have expected to find it, and 
um, where do we not really see it? So it's largely seen in the its natural environment, which is the aquatic environment, in association with crustaceans and certain types of algae, um, and can infect across a variety of ages in terms of uh, hosts, people. Um, transmission is via the fecal oral route. So basically meaning that that is ingestion of contaminated water and food and uh, contaminated vegetation, if perhaps it was um, fertilized with human feces or something to that nature. Okay, great. Okay. How does cholera present clinically? Right. So uh, as you had alluded to earlier, just to be aware that the incubation period can be quite short. Mm. Um, so anything from a couple of hours to two to three days up to five days. Mm. But um, most people will have mild disease um, and others can even be asymptomatic. So it then makes it a bit difficult to really, uh, you know, have a high index of suspicion and know that this is actually cholera because they can be asymptomatic. But basically, as we said, it's a diarrheal disease. So it presents with uh, diarrhea, mm -hmm. which can also have rice water stools or can have mucus within it as well. As other features can be vomiting, which can occur early on. Um, mostly there's no fever that's associated. It's said that fever is usually in the pediatric population. And the key thing here is a very dehydrating diarrhea. That's always the key thing to look out for. Okay. Uh, I remember a, a few weeks or was it a, a week ago? I don't even recall. On the Monday, Helen Joseph Witz ID seminars, they, they gave a quick rapid review as well, emphasizing the speed with which... Mm -hmm it can uh, kill a patient. It, it, it was quite eye-opening. It's, you, you know, you read about it in the textbooks, but you, it, it doesn't kind of click that, that it can be within hours, which mm -hmm. is in an adult, you know, um, we're used to seeing it in, in children with, with the rotavirus where diarrhea can very rapidly be fatal, but in an adult to, to so, so quickly succumb is, is quite scary. It's that whole thing of severe dehydration in an adult. In the pediatric population, I, I think our pediatric colleagues are quite familiar with that. But on the adult side, it's not so common. So that should really be red flags to someone. Yeah, no, especially to, to us who who are our only interaction with cholera was the, well, at least in the lab, was the uh, intermittent pad that we think is a is a, a is a patient sample, and then just a. Uh, freak out and rush to Amanda's office and <laughs> not knowing what to do with it. It's uh, um, yeah, it can be yeah. quite. But yeah, so now coming into to the current outbreak, what can you tell us about it? When did it when did it start, and where where is it focused? So the current outbreak in the country started on the fifth of February, twenty twenty three. And it was in Gauteng. And the first two cases that were reported, actually, there was a history of recent travel to Malawi with a, a month prior to them presenting. So um, that was, you know, behind the, uh, with the knowledge that obviously Malawi's got an outbreak happening currently. And so with having visited and come back um, to South Africa and then fallen ill, the two cases. And how many cases are we now seeing and in which areas are these are these cases? 
So the data that's currently on a National DOH official platform, because obviously you need to use official data, is as of the 8th of June. They haven't really updated it since then, but they uh, quote 184 lab-confirmed cases mm -hmm. and 392 suspected cases within five provinces in the country, and those provinces being Gauteng, which actually has uh, the, the lion's share of the cases, in fact, mm -hmm. followed by Northwest, Mpumalanga, Limpopo, and Free State. So that's the areas that are currently um, involved. And outside of the country, um, uh, there's a lot of other uh, um, fellow African states that also have currently got an outbreak, including Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and even further up east, um, Somalia, South Sudan, many, many countries. Okay. And um, what about the rest of the world? So uh, I know that, that, that in South Africa, it's, it's not generally considered, um, well, it's not, not frequently seen, the um, outbreaks at least. Um, so we might not be so familiar with um, the management and diagnosis, but what is the situation outside of South Africa? Which which countries, for example, would be uh, would you consider it in a returning traveller, or which country would you advise travellers who are going there to to be aware of its um, presence? So, um, as alluded to earlier, if uh, travelling to uh, what's uh, so-called a lower-income, middle-income country. So if you're traveling to a country where um, they potentially might not be safe drinking water or uh, adequate sanitation, you should have a really high index of suspicion uh, for uh, um, any sort of water-related infections like cholera. Okay, so now you've got a patient in front of you, Amanda, and you're suspecting cholera. I suppose the first mm -hmm. question you're going to ask yourself is who are you going to call um, if yeah. you haven't seen this before, if you haven't managed this before? Well, uh, when I, I hear that question, the first thought is my mind is certainly not the Ghostbusters, yeah. right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when confronted with such a case, you really want to um, call upon as much assistance as possible. So the first important thing would be to actually, on your clinical suspicion, um, notify uh, the relevant authorities. So we have our um, Notifiable Medical Conditions uh, app, and cholera is, is top of the list on that. So you should even notify on a clinical suspicion so that that already kind of um, spurs on the public health response as well. Um, other than that, you should call your trusty friend in the laboratory to ask about sample collection and what to do. Um, you should call upon your fellow uh, clinicians in terms of if that uh, patient needs uh, quite a, a, a brisk uh, recess in terms of fluid rehydration, um, as well as your local CDC officer to also inform them about possible cholera, because that would then bring about calling the uh, environmental health people, the laboratory people, the whole sort of cascade is then activated. Okay, so there's a lot of people to call and to chat to. So it's certainly something not to manage alone. Yes, certainly, certainly. And if there are numerous calls going to your friendly laboratory microbiologist and you just can't get through at that moment, what, what samples would you would you want to tell clinicians to send um, if if they don't have access to that information just offhand? So a stool sample, 
can absolutely send a stool sample. And ideally, um, if you have access and availability to specialized transport medium, most labs and hospitals in, in light of the outbreak have been equipped with the carry blare medium, which is a specialized transport media for transporting stool, which basically just allows for um, such that your normal flora doesn't outgrow the potential pathogen that may be in the stool and to maintain viability of those organisms and, until such a time where it can be further processed in the laboratory. So stool sample, definitely. But that stool sample being collected must be collected with utmost care because it's obviously potentially highly infectious. So to make sure that that person can uh, obviously wear the appropriate uh, PPE to prevent themselves from um, you know, potentially uh, coming in contact with the stools. So make sure there's aprons and gloves. If you anticipate that there's going to be a splash in your eye because it's watery, put on the goggles beforehand. So uh, sample collection uh, um, to be done with utmost care. And if I can just follow up on that question. So this stool sample, if you don't have Kerry Blair transport media, how should it go to the lab? Should it go at room temperature, refrigerated? in specific packaging you know if if you're if you're not necessarily in a in a hospital which has an attached nhls lab how how should you make sure it gets to gets to the testing site and is still in a viable form so asap basically as soon as possible for it to really reach the laboratory but if you do not have access to a carry blair then an ordinary um, universal container that has a lid that seals very tight, making sure obviously that you indicate all the relevant patient details and clinician details as well. Because, you know, as you guys very well know, the problem that we have in the lab is then trying to locate someone to report that result yeah. too, right? So uh, a sample well well labeled and a nice seal, a sealed tight uh, universal uh, transport container that's essentially transported to the lab as soon as possible. If ideally you do have um, facility to transport it uh, um, refrigerated, then you can do that if you're not going to be able to send it to the lab within the next, you know, two, three hours. Okay. Thanks, Amanda. So I suppose this is where the micros get involved. And so can we talk about how cholera is diagnosed in the lab? And I suppose for a clinician who's listening, what we really want to focus on is what should the clinician be looking for in the lab report once it's out? Okay, so in the laboratory, uh, we would then receive that stool sample that's been uh, sent to us ASAP, as soon as possible, and we would then uh, inoculate it onto our various culture medium. Uh, the laboratory has different culture medium, especially for isolating different microorganisms, and um, the two uh, ones that we use particularly for cholera would be our alkaline pipton water, which is just a broth, really, that's an enrichment broth, where we would put some of the stool in there and incubate it overnight, that actually is uh, alkaline which is actually an environment that Vibrios prefer quite a lot um, and would then facilitate for growth of that while suppressing some of the normal flora. Mm. Further to that, we have other selective and differential uh, media that are specialized for isolating Vibrios, uh, like our TCBS plate, um, which we would, uh, would then select out basically for growth of Vibrio organisms. And if it looks suspicious, we would further work it up from there, do a gram stain and do oxidase testing and uh, put it through our identification system, essentially. Okay, great. 
Um, that was a nice quick overview. And in terms of the clinician looking at the report, what's important for them to keep an eye out for? Yeah. So in terms of that stool in itself, uh, we would also look for other stool pathogens. We wouldn't honestly just only look for cholera. We're quite good. Uh, so we would also look mm-hmm. for salmonella and shigella and campylobacter and other um, you know, a potential pathogens that can cause diarrhea. So it's for the clinician to really read the report slowly and clearly to see mm-hmm. whether or not Vibrio is isolated or tested or not tested. Because um, some laboratories might be smaller and might not have capacity to have the specialized medium. So it could say uh, cholera not tested. That would be when you actually need to say, hey, listen, I actually really think this patient has got cholera. Can you really look for it? Mm. Um, and to just also be aware that um, if if your report says virial cholera isolated, that is a notifiable condition. Um, and that it should honestly indicate even on the report that it's notifiable so that you can um, then alert your authorities as well. Thanks, Amanda. And uh, don't uh, don't confuse the not isolated with isolated. I think we get a, a, a phone call, a phone call a week about uh, and not isolated this or not isolated this, asking for susceptibilities. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> can yeah. look here. Yes, and, yes, because it goes with capacity, right? If the lab doesn't have capacity, then they'll just not test versus not isolated. So it's to be quite, you know, slow and thorough with your reading and to see does it say isolated or not isolated or not tested. Mm. Yeah. And uh, just just from my inexperience, I guess I, I mean I've I've never seen a report with cholera with Vibrio cholera signed or toxigenic signed out. How would we distinguish on the report between uh, toxigenic versus non toxigenic? Do we is there a separate comment that that we generally put in just uh, because I mean we yeah. we fortunately I guess haven't seen it here yeah. in Grotesque, so I've not really been exposed to it. Yes, yes. Well, that would now be within the domain of our main reference lab uh, within the country, which is the NICD, uh, where they obviously do the toxin testing and then add that additional component about whether toxin present or not. Uh, so as far as our capacity within your usual smaller local laboratories, it would just be about whether the organism is present or not present, and then further then referred for um, toxin testing. I think some of the laboratories are actually able to say whether it's at least O1 or non O1, if you've got a type, a small typing kit available. But I think you're right, Amanda. That's mm. not it's not across the board. Um, so some some lab reports may have that and others not. Okay, it's good that some uh, have the capacity. That's really great um, because I'm pretty sure the NICD is inundated right now. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Just further to that, the comment of it not being isolated, it's important for a clinician also to recognize whether there was a delay in sample processing. So check the date of uh, submission compared to the date the specimen was processed. Also note and sometimes there's a difference in the clinician who requests the test and the and the clinician who's reading the report. Um, you'd want to know whether that specimen was sent appropriately on Kerry Blair transport medium. Um, and the laboratories should, in fact, be putting a comment to say this was a stool specimen received in Kerry Blair transport medium or just a stool specimen sent without Kerry Blair transport medium. So these are all additional little things which help you understand the accuracy of the result and the reliability of the result you've obtained, particularly when it's a negative result. 
and you're still suspecting the disease in the patient. Absolutely. Okay. And so, I mean, we, we've talked at length about Vibrio cholera, but there are also other Vibrio species. So are there Vibrios that, that might present with a similar clinical picture or that might present completely differently, but still still be a Vibrio expo or acquired in the same way that uh, clinicians should probably be aware about um, at this stage so that, they, so that we don't have a um, mistaken identity, I guess, of some form or another? Yep, yep, yep. These organisms all... Um unfortunately are, are quite strongly related and therefore can have uh, similar um, features and, and presentations as well. So other members of the Vibrionaceae um, family can also cause um, a diarrhea and vomiting, particularly if you consider people who eat um, shellfish and sometimes oysters and that kind of uh, food where they can be at risk for, for getting other species of Vibrio. So definitely outside of the sort of context of contaminated water, also food, you can get other Vibrio species as well. Mm. Amanda, can we move away from diagnostics now and talk about therapy? What are the most important points regarding uh, treatment of Vibrio, Vibrio cholera? Uh, sure. Treatment, uh, the most important thing really is fluid rehydration. Mm. Uh, can't stress that more than enough. Uh, mainstay of therapy is getting that patient fluid resuscitated and, you know, uh, nice and happy again. So um, other than that, we know that they can, uh, you know, deteriorate quite quickly. So fluids, 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 fluids. Okay. And if if it is confirmed, is there any directed antimicrobial therapy? And what what is its role? Is it going to um, if it if there is an advised therapy, does it prevent spread or is it for direct treatment? You know, what, what is its role? Yeah, so with um, antimicrobial agents, really it's been uh, advised that they are only really used in sort of cases that have moderate to severe dehydration. So sort of the really severe cases. Uh, so if someone comes in and it's you think it's mild, uh, or even if it's asymptomatic, there isn't really a, a suggested role in those cases. So moderate and severe dehydration, that's where you want to use antimicrobials. And in terms of choices, uh, antimicrobials that can be used are quinolones uh, um, quite often, and also in certain instances, if you have susceptibility, um, doxycycline as well, depending on the local strains and the local epidemiology. And uh, I mean, that also ends up being the likely the preferred therapy for other Vibrio species, if we're just going to touch on that, especially the fluoroquinolones, I think. Mm. And then moving on from just the patient who's in front of you, um, just considering the amount of diarrhea there is, and as you were talking about, making sure you collect the specimen carefully so that you don't cause spread or infect yourself during the process. Obviously, there's a lot of infection prevention and control and public health measures that are required for cholera. Um, so what are these? And is there anything more from the lab side that is also required for infection prevention and control? Yeah, so um, ideally, you would like to isolate the patient uh, just to prevent spread to you know other patients in the ward. But if you have 
a couple of patients and limited space, then at least you can cohort them together in you know one section of the ward versus intermingling them with the other cases. So isolation or cohorting of cases just to prevent you know other people coming in contact with that profuse watery diarrhea. And um also um contact precautions. It isn't actually an organism that spreads by person-to-person contact per se, it's ingestion. But of course, if you're having overwhelming, profuse diarrhea, it really helps a lot if you put someone on contact precautions because that limits, you know, sort of uh potential spread of the organism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those two components are really quite key. Okay. And uh in just just to follow up on that, uh in terms of the the contact precautions and inward management are the mm. the standard um, antiseptics and uh, cleaning agents that you would use normally appropriate and and effective in cholera. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Our standard uh, chlorhexidine and seventy percent alcohol are still adequate. It's just to note that we must always, especially if it's the hand rub alcohol, make sure that your hands are dry. You know, because I think a lot of us work in a rush, 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 and you uh, want to sanitize your hands, but you move on while they're still wet. So mm-hmm. remembering that the, the the antiseptic activity itself actually occurs once the hands are completely dry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the usual standard uh, precautions for hand hygiene in the wards are still adequate. Okay, and now my favorite, the muir pad. So <laughs> environmental testing, what or phrase in another way what on earth is a moorpad <laughs> it's it's i guess a, a very absorbent pad that's placed within water bodies right for sampling of water uh from which they then uh, extract the water and um you know try and culture microorganisms from there that are of significance in terms of water bodies um, and that's where we come along because we usually receive an isolate from our public health laboratory and they say, please, can you check if this is not cholera? Because they have done all the primary processing of, of those uh, moor pads, et cetera, to try and grow organisms that phenotypically they think could be cholera. And and why do they, why well, why do they do this? Is it kind of a sentinel surveillance or, uh, I mean, does it, does isolating um, non-toxigenic cholera kind of precede outbreaks or is it used to monitor outbreaks so you know what's the what's the role yeah so the role is obviously uh, to see if our water is nice safe and healthy right that we're drinking day to day but other than that you hit uh, the nail on the head spot on it surveillance to know what do you have in your local water bodies um, and to see if they are um uh, vibrio cholera they are they toxin producing yes or no because then you can know which parts of your of your city of your areas have the the organism and if it's toxin producing and you can sort of preempt or be on high alert rather for cases of um of human uh, infection and that already kind of um makes sure that your response is a lot more robust in terms of your public health response because you are uh, forearmed with knowledge about where your hotspots are in, in your in your area basically mm-hmm. okay so i think just one more thing is that i think more pads are not used universally and I think there are also laboratories that will collect water samples in, I think, one liter bottles or whatever it might be. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think just important to check 
which area of the country and for those listeners who are listening from south outside of south africa before you just send something off to the laboratory whether it's a moor pad or it's a container full of water rather phone around find out what kind of testing is offered and how do they want you to submit that particular specimen just so you don't end up wasting time and then waiting three or four days only to find out that in fact it was an incorrectly submitted specimen um yeah so just check what's available where you are Absolutely. And to work with the environmental health people also, because they guide a lot of that process as well. Correct. Absolutely. So on that note, Amanda, then just Mm -hmm. on the idea of checking what's available, can you give us some or tell the, the listeners about where they can find important, reliable and accurate resources for the current outbreak? Yes, uh, sure. Locally, there's always up-to-date information on the NICD website, um, as well as the um, National Department of Health as well, will give you all the up-to-date data as per regards to the cases and in terms of management advice. NICD website also has got guidelines, so that's very useful. One little one page where you can quickly have a look uh, to refresh your memory if you've forgotten what to do or not Mm. really sure what to do. And in terms of uh, outside of the country, uh, reputable sources to look for information would be the WHO website. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the CDC website has lots of great information on, on, on what to do and to guide clinicians as well. Great. Thanks, Amanda. And we'll just make sure for the listeners that we put the links to all of these websites that Amanda has mentioned in the show notes so you can access them easily. Mm -hmm. And then just a a last question. Does uh, cholera present differently um, in children? And are there any specific, is there any specific advice for managing children with cholera? Uh, Not any different in children. Uh, They also get watery diarrhea, Uh, They can also get really sudden onset illness. The only thing is that sometimes in children, they can tend to have fever, whereas in adults, not really. And so therefore, you must just be cautious of managing the fever as well Um, and, and, you know, preventing things like febrile seizures, et cetera, because they have such high temperatures. Of course, still in children, fluid management is the number one pillar of management for cholera cases. Okay, great. Amanda, do you have any last words for our listeners today as a quick summary of what we've spoken about? Yeah, so essentially, if you're um, seeing a patient, patient with diarrhea, uh, to have a high index of suspicion for cholera currently, as we have an outbreak in the country, um, and to number one, if it's a suspicion, notify. You'd rather over-notify than under-notify, because remember that notifying um it unleashes a whole public health response of mm-hmm. investigation, queries that's looked into all the surrounding areas because one case of cholera out there that's a positive means there's many other out there that we're not yet aware of that we could try and you know uh, deal with. Mm-hmm. And the second point is also to call your friendly neighborhood microbiologist, um, pick up the phone, chat with us. If you're not sure about sample collection, uh, what samples to take, et cetera, we're very uh, accessible and we love chatting with people to, you know, assist you better manage your cases. Um, yeah, those, I guess, the two two crucial things that I feel should come out of this um, discussion today. Thanks. That's brilliant. Well, thanks, Anna. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Amanda. This was an excellent discussion. Thanks for keeping it succinct. I think we got through all of the important points 
And I hope this will be yeah. helpful for all the healthcare workers who are listening to the show. And Amanda, I hope you can join us again sometime in the future. And we promise we'll give you more time to prepare than we did for this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, looking forward to doing more chatting with you guys. Thank you. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Ruan. And just one last reminder to like, follow, and share Microbe Mail. And so that's it from me, Vin, Ruan, and Vinita. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.